If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. If you're using the Bible provided in the pew rack in front of you, that is on page 1026. 1026. Let's pray together. God, we open your word and we take this moment, this time to pause and ask that you would open our hearts. We ask that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would open the doors of heaven to see the glory of our Christ revealed in these pages of Scripture. We ask that you would open our minds to understand what is being said by a preacher who sometimes isn't very easy to understand. May my words be clear. Help me not to muddle things nor to confuse this glorious message of Christ. God, we pray your glory through your word in our hearts for our good. We pray this in the name of Christ, who came as a baby, who reigns as a king, who's coming again. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want to ask you a question as we start. This is rhetorical. You don't have to answer it. But let's say uh, that Jesus was physically here with us today. And instead of, well, first of all, if he was here, uh, I would not be the one up here on the platform. We would have a guest preacher that day. But let's say that I was not up here and I was down with a congregation and he said, okay, let's just open it up. Let's have Q&A today. What, what would you like to know? You can ask me whatever you like. What would you like to know? Perhaps some would ask, you know, questions about evil and suffering and how a good God could allow that kind of thing in this world. Perhaps you'd want to know questions of curiosity about uh, uh, obscure or difficult to understand passages in the Bible. Maybe you'd want to know questions about evolution and How, you know, does science not agree with our Bible? Or how does it all fit together in some ways? Maybe there'd be somebody who'd ask, you know, hey, Jesus, help me understand dinosaurs. They're real. They're not in the Bible. What's going on there? You throw out questions kind of like that. Questions of general curiosity. Maybe questions from personal experience in some way. But I imagine we'd kind of get to questions along those lines. Maybe you'd ask something like, hey, Jesus, uh, when are you coming back? Is this it? You came back here? Cool. You know, that kind of thing. But let's now take yourself from being in this room with Jesus standing up here, and let's say you were sitting down at a table with Jesus, a kitchen table. You're having a glass of tea, a cup of coffee. It's just you and him. He says, let's talk. 
What are you going to ask him about then? As I thought about that for myself this week, I realized that I would probably be asking a whole host of different questions if it was just me and him on a private level. Imagine maybe you would ask questions about not, hey God, help, or hey Jesus, help me to understand these questions about evil and suffering in our world, but you'd, you'd ask them from a pointed place of, Jesus, I, I've suffered in this way. And I don't understand what to make of it in light of what the Bible says about you and who you are. Why did you allow this to happen? Or maybe you'd ask questions about my life has gone in the direction it's gone for you. Or maybe you'd ask questions about I I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know what my future holds. I feel totally unworthy and undone. And I don't know where to look or to turn. I think if we were talking to Jesus one-on-one at a kitchen table over a cup of coffee or over a glass of tea, our questions would be a lot more real, a lot more penetrating. Well, what we see in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, is hopefully the first steps that we can take in finding answers to some of the most deep questions that we have in our lives about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what it means for us. We're going to see in a way how he answers these questions for the people of Israel in his coming. So look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, and just follow along as I read it. This is right after, if you were here at the Christmas Eve service, wise men came and they fell down and worshipped Jesus and then they left and they did not go back and tell the evil King Herod where Jesus was because they were warned about him. So now we pick up here. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I believe that Matthew is showing us, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this baby Jesus who came is able to bind up our deepest wounds and to be the hope of our longing hearts. Jesus is able to bind up our deepest wounds and be the hope of our longing hearts. First, we're going to see how he does this and seeing his direct connection with his people. If you look in verses 13 to 15, well, actually, what I want to say before, before we get in this, so the first thing we'll see is this direct connection Jesus has with his people, Israel. Let's set a little context in, your, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written, you, you might be familiar with this, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Matthew was a Jewish man who was writing to a Jewish audience with the express purpose of conveying to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah that you have waited for. He is the Christ. That's why what we looked at last week in the genealogy and the family tree of Jesus is so important. That's why Matthew leads off his book with that because he wants to say, hey, you know your family history. Jesus comes out of that line. And so then if you were to go to the end of our chapter 2, if we were to then enter into chapter 3 afterwards, you would, if, if it was a movie, what you'd find is you'd find the screen would go to black and then a new scene would appear and you'd have a little subtitle that said 25 years later and we'd enter the point where Jesus was now an adult and beginning his ministry at the beginning of chapter 3. So you have two chapters out of 28 chapters in Matthew that are devoted to this birth narrative of Jesus. And now chapter 2, the last part of this narrative for us, is kind of odd. I read it, and you might have read it, as you followed along, you thought to yourself, huh, that's a little interesting stuff here. And so we ask the question, what does Matthew want to communicate to his audience? Matthew wants to tell them, Matthew wants to show them that Jesus is one of them, that he is directly connected with them. We first see this in verses 13 to 15, but we see this overarching argument. If you were to look in verse 15 and verse 17 and verse 23, each of these sections concludes with a very similar line. Verse 15, see the end of verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Verse 17, this was fulfilled, what was, this then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, at the end of that, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Matthew is wanting to tell his Jewish audience who knew their Old Testament prophets, Jesus is the one that the prophets have been waiting for. And so then, we're doing a lot of history right now, but this is important to get. If you were to ask, what are the two most seminal events in the life and the history of the people of Israel, you would find it would be two different journeys. The journey to Egypt and a journey back out of Egypt. Is, it's recorded. The journey to Egypt is recorded at the end of Genesis in the story of Joseph. And you, you're probably faintly at least familiar with that story. Joseph 
uh, in God's sovereignty and in his providence ends up down in Egypt because of the evil of his brothers. But then there's a famine in the promised land. And so Joseph, who has risen up to a place of prominence in the Egyptian government, is able to bring his people, the people of Israel, down to Egypt where they will be protected in the midst of a severe famine in their homeland. Well, then the book of Exodus picks up, and it's 400 years later. The people of Egypt are vast and numerous, but they are no longer a people celebrated and, and a people treasured in Egypt, but they are people scorned, and they have become a people of, uh, of hatred, uh, or of hatred that is directed towards them by Pharaoh and, and his Egyptian forces. So then the first part of the book of, Egypt, or book of Exodus is the departure, the rescuing of God of his people out of Egypt. And so then, actually, throughout Jewish history, whenever tensions would rise in the promised land, sometimes people or families would would leave their homes and flee down to Egypt and wait for the temperature to go down in their homeland. It's estimated that the city of uh, uh, Alexandria in Egypt, at at the time of Jesus' birth, had as as many as, I think the number is like 100,000 Jewish residents. So it would not be uncommon For Joseph and his family, fearing for their safety, to flee down to Egypt. And so what Matthew is holding up for us here is, first off at the outset, Jesus is connected with his people. Now we are not, I I, I don't know, there might be some in this room who are Jewish or have Jewish roots. I do not have Jewish roots, and I know many of us do not. So what we pull from this, or one thing that we grasp from this, is the nature by which Jesus in his incarnation, his being born as a human, being born as a babe, reminds us of his direct connection with us. He can sympathize with us. That's just he could sympathize with his people, the people of Israel. This is beautiful. This is wonderful for us to be aware of, for us to set our minds upon as we consider and as we make our way through this passage, but also as we go forward and make our way through the days that lie ahead as the people of God. I don't know if you've ever seen politicians campaigning for office. And I'm thinking more like national elections, so something like presidency or, you know, that that kind of deal where you got to travel and campaign all across the country. It's always funny to me whenever you see a, a candidate for, the, for, for office who, uh, upon traveling to a region where maybe the dialect is just a little different, maybe accents are a little stronger, inevitably you'll find that that candidate will, will kind of start to adopt the local dialect in their speeches or in their radio ads or that kind of thing. And it, it, it's, it's laughable to me because oftentimes those accents are incredibly funny. It'd be as if I tried to pull off a Boston accent to, to sound more relatable around here. It'd be laughable. So what we find in, in the birth of Jesus is that his coming to us, he is not an outsider who, who is trying to fit in, but he is actually one of us who is directly connected with his people. And he's even saying to the people of Israel in one sense here, you have known suffering and hardship throughout your history. You've fled to Egypt. You've fled out of Egypt. You have not known where to go because you have no home. And Jesus, who has come now, he knows that experience. Literally, of not having a home. Not having a refuge. A place of safety. A place that was... His family's own. 
So Joseph, verse 14, he took, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You know, this passage is full of Old Testament references, as I've alluded to already. There's three distinct ones here. And if I'm honest with you, you know, you think about Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Do you know one of the best ways that you can learn more about this Christ whom we celebrate? It's through the Old Testament. That's one reason why I feel a responsibility. I believe I have a God-given responsibility as a pastor to preach not just from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. As a shepherd, to, to, to serve the church a, a, a full, uh, full multi-course meal of the Word of God. You know, I love sweets. Hey, I like sweets. I don't really love them. I love, like, bad food for you. Burgers, pizza, let's say that. Fried chicken. I like some chocolate, but not all of it. But anyway, for as much as I love certain foods, I'm not going to be nearly as healthy if I don't eat my fruits and vegetables. Or at least that's what I'm told, and that's what I tell my son even now. For us as Christians, we need a healthy diet of God's Word. We need a healthy diet of God's Word that we might grow and that we might uh, uh, grow in a healthy manner as followers of Christ, and that we might know more the God to whom we pray. And the Christ of whom we celebrate and we anticipate. But sometimes, let's be honest, the Old Testament can seem difficult to understand. Hard to digest. There's a lot of names in there that I I can't pronounce those. There's a lot of stories in here. There's a lot of events going on that seem quite repetitive or seem quite confusing. Well, let me help you out. This week in our church's weekly email, I'm going to send out a a number of recommended Bible reading plans for 2022. I encourage you to look for that email and and, and be ready, and and those will be coming out. And and, uh, if you have any questions about possible Bible reading plan for you to use in your own private devotions, let me know. I'd love to help you and, and give you all the resources you need on that. Additionally, if you want to know, hey, I want to know a little more about how the whole Bible fits together, how it all makes sense, how I can see this, this, this wonder of Christ who has come a little more clearly by understanding the Old Testament. I want to recommend the book, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Once again, that's called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. The title is God's Big Picture, but it's actually kind of a small book. You can read it. It won't be intimidating to get into, I assure you. I have found that it is an aid in helping to connect and understand all that the Bible holds out for, for us. Do you want to know the God that you call out to and cry out to in your prayers? He reveals himself to us in his word. And that's what Matthew is telling his Jewish audience here. He's saying your history, your pains, your suffering, Christ has come from there. Christ is one of you. But not only is he connected with his people, but he has even borne the sorrows of his people. 
verse 16 in this birth narrative. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, let's just pause there for a moment. Herod was a notoriously brutal, vicious figure. Herod was, some, some examples of his brutality, uh, he had three of his own sons killed for being insufficiently loyal to him, their father. He had an order, he made an order as he was approaching his own death that when he died, a member of every household under his reign was also to be killed so that there would be sufficient mourning throughout the nation at his death. That's just twisted, right? Thankfully, that order was not seen through. Somebody in the like, government bureaucracy like didn't pass that order down. Maybe they kind of figured, all right, Herod's dead. We don't have to follow through on this order. He's not going to be able to do anything to us. But that just shows the evil of the man that we're talking about. And so Herod orders that the young boys, two years and young under, be killed. Because he wants to snuff out, he wants to end this little king. But Joseph and Mary and Jesus had fled already. So this brutal killing of these young boys happens. And then verse 17 tells us, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel re- weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is quoting from the book of Jeremiah. And what it is, is it's, it's, it's recounting part of the prophecy of when... It, it, so, so I mentioned to you there's two seminal events that, that, that Matthew is alluding to here in setting, the course, setting our course for understanding and seeing the Jesus who has come to us. The first was Egypt. The second was their, their, their deportation and their exile in Babylon. So you could think of it like this. Two big events... Uh, of sorrow and of, uh, of agony in the history of the people of Israel, Egypt and exile, okay? And so exile, the people of uh, Judah, the people of Israel, they're overtaken by, by the Babylonian forces and they are literally marched on their own trail of tears out of their homeland. And Rachel, who's considered this, this great mother of the people of Israel, she in Genesis 35, it's recorded that she was buried uh, likely in this town, Rama, and so this prophecy of Jeremiah that's being quoted here—it's uh, like it's like the, the the deceased mother of the land, Rachel, has come up and she is weeping as she sees her sons and daughters marched out of their homelands and marched into exile. What Matthew is showing us here is that this Jesus who has come, He knows not only you in a level that He was born to be part of who you are, but in a level where He was born to endure and experience even the shame and the sin that you have committed. The exile of Israel 
came about because of the apostasy of Israel and their denial of their God whom they worshipped. And they gave themselves to false gods and gave themselves to terrible military alliances seeking protections apart from God. And those were their own undoing. And so exile was a shameful part of the people of Israel's family history. It was a very real part, but it was a shameful part. And it is as if the coming of Jesus, is, we are being told he can handle this too. That's one aspect of the death of Christ on the cross that we lose sight of. Scripture tells us, yes, absolutely, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That through repentance of our, over our sins and belief in Him, that we can find new birth, we can find new life, and begin following Him. But another aspect of the death of Christ, another aspect of the gospel that gets overlooked, is Scripture tells us that Jesus not only bore our sin, but He bore our shame. So take yourself back to that kitchen table talking with Jesus. What are the things about your life? What are the things about your pain? What are the things about your sorrows? What are the things about your mistakes that bring you shame? Jesus can handle those. In one sense, that's what Matthew is showing his Jewish audience here. He's not only your king who has come for you. He's your king who understands you. He's your king who knows you. Think of the the, uh, old home movies that you can watch. You can see yourself as a child. You can see family members. You can see stories. You can see all these things. and, And go through a little bit the home movie of your life, even now in your own mind. Not only do you see wardrobes that were, what were we thinking there? Or not only do you see carpet choices and home decorating choices that would be uh, dramatically out of line today. But you probably see and, and see ways in which like the holidays that you knew, days of old. Oh yeah, there was joy there, but oh, there was the shame of that that we were dealing with at the time. There's a sorrow of my own pain and my own agony that I was walking through, that I was celebrating there, I was unwrapping the presents, and yet nobody else around me knew that sorrow or that shame. You see, what the gospel tells us, what the birth of Jesus tells us, is that he has come for us for both the good and the bad. He's come for us, and in one sense, he's told us, your good isn't as good as you think it is. And your bad, no matter how bad you think it is, I'm able to bear it. I'm able to handle it. He bore our shame on the cross, crucified, naked, mocked, ridiculed, that we may no longer have shame before him. Meditate upon that thought. You might be embarrassed by the, scare, by the stares and by the, by, by the looks of those who, who 
work around you, of those who sit around you at the lunch table. You might be mocked or you might be ridiculed by those who who you feel as if you don't fit in with them. And it might make your life miserable. But Jesus Christ has borne your shame. To the point that he does not mock, he does not deride, but he bore the mocking for you. Jesus Christ, God became flesh, born of Joseph and Mary. God became man that man might become sons and daughters of God. It's part of what Matthew is wanting his Jewish audience to understand. But that's not it. That's not all. Jesus is connected with his people. He's intimately aware of his people. And then lastly, in verses 19 to 23, we see that he writes the final story for his people. So we don't know how long it was. I don't think it was very long. History seems to record that Herod died around 4 AD. So Jesus maybe would have been three, four years old. By the way, like the AD and all that, like, like it's not necessarily, it, it's ballpark figure on Jesus' birth. So when I say Herod died four AD, then you can, okay, well, Jesus was four. Possibly, although we're not quite sure. It's an aside there, free of charge. You can sound really smart at lunch today and tell people that the AD and BC stuff is good, but it's not entirely fully accurate with the exact date of birth of Jesus. Okay, but when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Let's pause. So Joseph and the family, they're traveling back up from Egypt, and Joseph has this dream. Okay, don't go back to the region around Bethlehem, the region around Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a town about five miles uh, south of Jerusalem, same vicinity, kind of a suburb. Uh, In a sense, although it's a five-mile suburb when you don't have cars and all you have are donkeys and going on foot, it's a little further. But they go up to Galilee, which is uh, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of miles north of Jerusalem. Galilee was a region that was uh, further off the beaten path. It was a region that was still kind of freshly established. The town of Nazareth that they settled in was actually, this is quite interesting, it was likely settled by both Jewish and Gentile settlers as they came back from the exile in Babylon. We get the idea of this from the prophecy of Isaiah down in Isaiah chapter 11. And so what you have here is that Joseph and his family, they end up settling in this small town called Nazareth. And then verse 23 tells us, they went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That language for Nazarene or for Nazareth there, it ties, I told you, it ties into uh, Isaiah chapter 11. And if you remember from our study in Isaiah, it, it's discussed that there will be a branch that rises up 
as a shoot out of, uh, out of the stump of God's people. As they would be clear cut, in their, and illustratively clear cut in their exile to Babylon, there would be a, a, a shoot, a branch that would rise up that would birth a new people of God. And Nazareth is, 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 is that language for branch. And so what Matthew is holding up for his audience here is that this king whom you have anticipated, speaking to his Jewish audience, he is one of you. He comes from your line. He's directly connected with your past glories, your past shames. He knows all that you bear, all that you endure, and he has come from you and for you. But get this, he has not only come that he might reign over you, but he has come that he might be the glorious king over Israel and over the Gentiles, over the non-Jews. And so he has come that he might write the final pages to your story. And that is what Matthew is getting at. As he's setting the page, setting the table for what is to come in the next 26 chapters of the life of Jesus. He's going to hold Jesus high up as king of Israel. The one whom the prophets anticipated but the one whom our hearts and our hopes can rest in. That is what Matthew is moving at here. He's not pulling out three just three three odd references to try to fill pages on a paper. The assignment from the teacher for Matthew was not, hey, you need to turn in 28 chapters by the end of the week. And so Matthew's kind of doing what I had to do sometimes when I wrote papers in school and just fill in a lot of stuff that I don't really know what I'm writing, but hey, it works. No, Matthew is setting the page to say the king has come, and this king is far greater than you have anticipated, O Israel. But get this, it's not that he's just far greater than you've anticipated, O Israel. He's far greater than you or I have anticipated as we sit here to this day. Because what Matthew is promising us here, and it's really interesting. If you go back, I referenced the the prophecy from Jeremiah, the weeping of Rachel for her children as they were exiled out of the city and all that. It's really strange, but right after this prophecy here from Jeremiah, literally the very next verse from the one we read in verse 18, it is a word of hope for God will rescue his people. And so the message of the coming of Christ is a word of hope for you and for me where Christ meets our shame and our sin front and center. But then He somehow meets it in a way that He invites us into Himself and we walk through this looking glass to the point where in Christ we enter into a new world. Where all of our lives, all of our shame, all of our sorrows, all of our hardships, all of our sin, all of our baggage, all of our difficulties, all of our anxieties, all of our worries, all of our uh, strife, all of our conflict, all of the wars that this world knows, all of the pandemics that ravage this world, all of the all of the. Uh, untimely deaths, all of everything that happens in this world that cries out for another world. Matthew is saying that these, the hope for this, the hope for this new world, 
is going to be found in a carpenter that's going to come out of Nazareth in about 25 years. In the Gospel of John, you have that funny quip that one of the guys makes when he hears of Jesus of Nazareth, where he says in John 1, kind of, huh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what Matthew is holding up for us is that the king comes out of Nazareth. The king who was born a helpless babe comes out of Nazareth. And what he's holding up for us as well, and where this grabs us, is he's not just saying this to us so that we can know our Old Testaments a little better, so that we can know the history of Israel a little more clearly. No, he's holding these up so that we might know the king who this tells of and that we might start to live as citizens of his kingdom. What Matthew is offering here for you is an opportunity to offload the baggage of the shame that you carry over your own sin. He's offering you the opportunity to sit down with Jesus and to lay before Him the struggles, the hardships, the, 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 the confusion that you have over why your life has panned out the way it has or why certain instances in your life took that turn in the direction that you don't know why it went that direction. But you know it's been hard. He's offering you the opportunity to sit down with Jesus and say to Him and bring before Him your confusion and your pain over, over what is happening in the world today. Or over the missteps and the, 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 the hardships that your children are inflicting upon you with the decisions that they make that don't make sense to you. Matthew is offering you the opportunity to bring before Jesus all the ways in which both your past, your present, and your future bring you pain and bring you confusion and bring you shame. And he is offering you the opportunity to lay these all before Jesus and find in him that what Jesus offers you is himself and a hope that is grounded in him. And so where Matthew is going to take us is to see that Jesus, as we've already seen, he bore our sin and our shame on his cross cross is not the end of the story. He went to the tomb where he was resurrected and he inaugurated a new kingdom. So the birth of Jesus is a birth whereby he invites us to come and know him through him coming to us. The resurrection of Jesus is an invitation to enter into a new kingdom where he reigns and where sin and death do not have the final word. And as Christians, this is the kingdom that we live in. It's a kingdom of hope grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a king who reigns, who was protected by God so that Herod could not destroy him. So that one day he would be destroyed so that we would know that the forces of our own sin and the forces of our shame cannot destroy us if we are in Christ. It's a kingdom that beckons us 
be able to take a deep breath. To be able to smile. To be able to laugh. To be able to rejoice. To be able to sing with hope. Not just because a baby has been born, but because a king has come. What Matthew is holding up for his audience and for us is that this king who has come, he invites you to sit down at a table with him. And he invites you to bring everything before him. And he receives it, he hears it, he understands it, he knows it. And then he invites you to see his nail-pierced hands. And as he has taken all of your questions, not from a heart of exhaustion, okay, I'm tired of you giving me the runaround, but from a heart of love, he opens his arms up to you. And he only asks you one question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? See, what Matthew's showing his audience as they've gone through Egypt and as they've gone through exile, and now as he comes out of this Nazareth, is that we can trust him. We can trust that he knows us. He knows the things about us that no one else knows about us. And he has a plan and a future for us that nothing else can offer. There's a plan and a future as residents and citizens of the kingdom of Christ. A kingdom where pandemics and sorrows, where wars and violence, where relational conflict and death itself are no more. The birth of Jesus is not just the story of Him coming to earth. It's the story of how we come to Him. And how we leave our sin and our shame of of earth and are invited to come before Him and find new life in Him. Do you trust Him? He's able to hear all your questions. And he asks you that one. Let's pray. Oh God. We thank you for Jesus. Who came near to us. Who is directly connected with us. Who bore our shame on the cross. That he might come. And bring a people to Himself that stretches across the globe. People who are able to say, blessed be Your name. People who are able to rejoice in the born and the crucified, the resurrected and the reigning, Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray You would help my brothers and sisters in this room. Help us all to give of ourselves to Him. To give before Him the things that we would not want to give to Him. To confess before Him the sins that we would want to hold back. To entrust Him with the shame that we would carry. That we feel marks us out as unworthy. 
and to find in Him the grace and the gladness in that resurrected King Jesus who offers us Himself and invites us to come in from the storm to sit down with Him and find in Him life everlasting. It's in His name we pray. Amen.